do pies and inclusivity have to do with one another? The owner of local Wonder Bakery, Gabby and Jules, was on to talk about that. And we also talked about how surging costs erode viability for affordable housing in Metro Vancouver. But first, a story about digital blackmail. In 2012, Amanda Todd took her own life after an ordeal of being relentlessly, brutally cyber-bullied. Now, 10 years later, the person accused of harassing and extorting her pleaded not guilty. Parents the world over are paying close attention to this case. Yes, because they feel for Amanda Todd's parents and they want to see justice, but also for another reason. They're learning something. They're trying to learn something. They're looking for insight on how to prevent sexual exploitation of their own kid and kids in their community too. So how should parents talk to their kids about sextortion? Let's welcome Richmond-based educator Tiana Sharifi. She's an owner of Sexual Exploitation Education to our show. Good morning, Tiana. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you, Tiana. First, what is meant by that term sextortion? Yeah, so sextortion is essentially digital blackmail. Uh, so an individual, a, a sex order, essentially gets a hold of a youth's uh, pictures or videos that are naked or nude, sexual in nature, and then uses that to get more content or to ask for money. Did the rate of sextortion increase in the last 10 years since uh, the Amanda Todd uh, tragedy occurred? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's something that we were seeing. It's kind of like its own epidemic. And I think that even since the pandemic, it's increased. Um, Just in the last year, there's been a 37% increase in online sexual exploitation. Um, And then we've we've seen actually from 2014 to 2020, there's been a three-time increase uh, in that as well. Wow. Uh, When we look back at when Amanda Todd took her life and some details of what had happened with the cyberbullying were made public, at that time, it was still, I guess, a bit of a shock. But maybe something like that happening now would be less of a shock because we are so much more digitally oriented. There's so many more apps out there to meet people and this kind of thing. But has our understanding of sextortion changed, do you think, in in the past 10 years? Um, I think... I think actually one thing that that is positive is that we've recognized that uh, this is just more than um, cyberbullying. It's actually a very intentional predation uh, around kids and and teens. And I think that we are becoming more aware that we do have to have these conversations with kids because it's so prevalent in, you know, pretty much every community that you go into. Yeah, Tiana, you go into to schools to educate kids about digital blackmailing. At what age is it appropriate to start talking about that to them? And, and how do you map it out for them? Yeah, so, you know, if you're going to be giving your kids access to the internet, or if their friends have access to the internet, you want to be having that discussion at that time. Um, essentially, you're giving them a tool to connect with strangers around the world. And so we want to really protect kids and prevent that from happening. We want to have those conversations early. Uh, what I recommend doing is having, you know, parents and teachers speaking to elementary school kids. And then when we get into high school, then we want to have more directed presentations and education to students there. Um, you know, and, and I think we also need to really recognize that even the most well-rounded child from the most loving home can be a victim of sextortion. So you said if you're going to give your kids access to the internet, you want to start educating them on sextortion. Uh, when, when do parents do that around? What, what age? 
Uh, essentially, the, the, the moment that child is going to have access to the Internet, that's when you want to do it. So even as young as eight wow. you know, years old, we, we want to talk about, you know, it's the same concept of if your kid starts to go to the playground on their own, you're going to be telling them about, you know, don't talk to strangers and, um, and, and just predators that are out there. So we have to do the exact same thing when kids are online as well. Okay, so what do you say to an eight-year-old? Yeah, so I think uh, essentially we want to, um, first of all, stay away from shame and fear. Um, You know, we want to talk more about just allowing kids to understand the red flags of unhealthy friends and followers. And so just a few things uh, that I always educate kids on and parents on is that you know, some red flags of unhealthy friends and followers are somebody who's showering you with affection and compliments when they don't even know you in person. Um, if they have an unhealthy age difference, so essentially if, if that child or teen is under 18, uh, then that would be anybody who's over the age of 18. Asking that child or youth to transfer to a different social platform providing gifts of any form, including even gaming tokens, uh, keeping interactions and private messages only. And then, of course, you have the asking for news or live stream. So those are just the main um, warning signs and red flags that kids can look out for and parents can talk to their kids about. And what's your recommendation for what parents should do if a kid comes to them with any of those red flags? Yeah, so I honestly, um, I, I, I understand, especially as a parent myself, that there might be an initial shock, anger, you know, you, you fear, you have all these emotions uh, coming up. But the one thing we want to prevent is any kind of shaming. Um, you know, that's really, that's that's the, the, the weapon that these predators use. For sure. Um, Tiana, so- I get that. But for any parent, if a child came to them, whether it was their own child or another one, with, uh, with some information about someone coming after them in that way, um, there would be fear. There would be legitimate fear in that parent. Yeah, def- and, and I and I understand that for sure. I think though that at the same time, we can experience those emotions and then be that um, you know stoic, stable source where that child needs to come forward because they're just as scared, if not more. Um, and what we want to do is really just walk into the steps uh, that you know that that this is something that we can get control over. Um, there is help out there. We're understanding this issue much better now, and there's better resources out there. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that we want to, even if, if we are scared as parents, uh, you know, and we can, we can sound very serious about the disclosure that's come forward, but making sure that we reassure that child or teen, you know, thank them for coming forward. Right. They've been do so. Yeah. So the parents just need to keep that fear in check um, and and uh, praise the child also for, for being open and honest about what's going on. Tiana, thank you so much. This has been very informative. Yeah, my pleasure. Gabby and Jules is a bakery that's well known for their delicious pies and not just sweet pies. I've been talking about sweet pies all morning, but uh, my producer, Jono here, just said that he likes their chicken pot pie, of course, savory pies. Gabby and Jules is also known for being an inclusive employer. A good chunk of their workers are on the autism spectrum and they're opening a new location in Burnaby. So here to join us to talk about it is the co-owner of Gabby and Jules, Lisa Beecroft. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. 
Okay, we've been talking about pies all morning <laughs> and people's favorite pies. <laughs> so before we get into the new location, what is your favorite pie? Oh my goodness. I know people ask me that and I'm like, that's like picking my favorite child. I yeah, mean, it is, so right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, we, it, what's so great about pies is that we are always changing them. So it kind of depends on yeah. the season. I mean, if I had to pick one from our current lineup, I would probably go with our blueberry Earl Grey pie. Oh, Wow, that one yes. just is, has dimensions that uh, I... Uh, are otherworldly, so right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, absolutely. Someone told me that your pies are the best for sharing. And I oh. nodded, but inside I was like, no, they are best for eating <laughs> alone by myself. Please and thank you. <laughs> They're so one, of the, one of the best moments for me was at a farmer's market where a young boy came up and bought a whole pie and he just sat right down on the curb and just got a fork and started <laughs> eating the pie. I was like, this is right fantastic. There. It brought me so much joy, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Wow. Okay, well, you are opening another location when so many uh, places, quite frankly, are closing. So what does that mean for how business is going? Well, um, what we actually did is um, the location that we have um, opened as the Gabby and Jules on Burnaby Heights, um, we had our... We also own cafes, Cafe Devano as well. And so we had Cafe Devano in that location on the Heights and had for 10 years um, been operating the cafe there. And um, we just like had, took the opportunity, like 10 years in, we were renegotiating a lease and we were looking at, you know, how the Heights had been developing and the number of coffee shops. And we were like, you know, how do we differentiate ourselves from the, the competition? But also what we had been hearing so often from... Um, fans of Gabby and Jules was that Port Moody was so far away and head out west. Yeah. And so um, we kind of took that, that gamble and revamped the, the space completely um, in a very short period of time. And it came together better than I could have uh, hoped for. And so far, the reception has been really wonderful and welcoming. Oh, that's great. Um, but you knew that it would do well there in place of Divano. Why? Oh, we, I mean, to be honest, we hoped so. <laughs> we were it was like, you know, we were like, okay, we're going to double down here and, and really hope that this is going to be it. I mean, certainly we had heard. It was a, it was a common um, comment from, from customers that um, getting out to Port Moody um, was, was tough. And so, um, and we knew that um, along that area, what we um, do is, is quite different than other bakeries along that stretch. So we, we certainly had hoped that... Um, it was kind of a unique um, opportunity there. And, and as I said, like it's been overwhelming, um, the response. You know, it just seems like we get a new uh, protocol and a new restrictive diet uh, that's popular, that's trending or fatting every uh, month or two, it seems. But yeah. it's like pies and baked goods made with legit delicious stuff like mm-hmm. butter and flour continue to prevail. Well, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, correct. I know, I know. We always get those questions with more of the fad sort of things that are happening. And, and what we found is saying tried and true to that, those core kind of real ingredients and real butter. And um, there's a, there's an appreciation for that. And I mean, for people that that question, I'm always like, well, it's moderation, right? It's maybe something that you don't have every every day. But when you do, to indulge in it when it's actually pure and real is, is something I think that um, from, from what we've seen anyway, people really appreciate and, and uh, gravitate towards. Yeah, I want to talk about something else that has to do mm-hmm. with your business, and that's that yeah. you guys are deliberately inclusive um, as mm-hmm. an employer. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's um, 
started early on um, when we um, were looking to open our bakery in Port Moody. And um, I had been talking to a customer at at the cafes, actually, and he was telling about his employer, um, SAP, which is a a large global employer. And they have um, a program called Autism at Work, where they were endeavoring to have 10% of their global workforce be individuals on the spectrum. I was like, that is so inspiring. And I was like, well, if a huge company like that can aspire to do that why can't we and that sort of kind of planted the seed and and obviously this was backed up by the fact that our eldest daughter juliana has autism and so we wanted to um you know make a difference um hopefully in in kind of creating more opportunities uh for people with disabilities and this was kind of our way of of exploring that opportunity and and it's been quite the road and we've learned so much as we've gone and um, what we've seen which is kind of an unintended awesome consequences is that because that was our intention and it started with just individuals on the spectrum it has kind of grown from there because people really were looking for a workplace that was inclusive they they were drawn to that and I think it created the safe space and um, last year we did a um, a survey of our employees and we found that over 40% of our employees um, identify as having a disability which was overwhelming because that was not representative of necessarily people just with autism it was like just a broader thing and and that which to me was like wow this is kind of incredible that 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 a people feel safe to disclose that and then also the fact that that's like you know just this amazing community that we've kind of created in our bakery of of people that um, feel safe and included and and welcomed so yeah, and it's, it's working really cool. out yeah oh my gosh it's you know what it, I, I i'm surrounded by the kindest most wonderful people it's it's a fantastic place to go to work it's just it's um yeah we're, we're truly blessed with with the team that we've kind of brought together there and they're just lovely human beings and it's it's been really um just cool to see how you know the individuals on the spectrum who've been with us for years like to see how they've grown and how they're such valued members of the team but then again to see just the greater um, transformation of the environment too has been really phenomenal and I just I can't say enough and I I speak often about it just to try to hopefully um, spark that um, kind of uh, interest in other employers and other small businesses in particular to hopefully explore the opportunities that are there to be inclusive Um, so I just think it does just make for a kinder workplace um so kinder workplace and and kinder world so thank you so much this morning for being with us oh thank you so much for having me i appreciate it Well, affordability in Vancouver and Metro Vancouver is quickly slipping away from us. There's the gas prices that we've been talking about, but also housing prices and the issues so bad that it's affected the realm of affordable housing. Our next guest is William Azarov. He's the CEO of the nonprofit Brightside Homes Foundation. Good morning, William. Hi, Raji. Thanks for having me. Uh, Before we get started here, can you explain what Brightside Homes Foundation does? Yeah, it's actually Brightside Community Homes Foundation. Okay. So we're we're not we're not for profit. Uh, we've been around since 1952, and we have 26 buildings in the city of Vancouver, providing homes to around a thousand uh, residents, um, all at uh, pretty low rental rates. Okay, can you just break that down for us a little bit further? What's considered affordable? Yeah, so a lot of our units are what's called rent geared to income, which means residents pay 30% of their income. Um, on rent. So we adjust the rent based on income. And a lot of our residents are seniors, uh, people with disabilities, um, families who don't have very high incomes. So um, their incomes can fluctuate, but with 70% of our residents being seniors, they're on fixed incomes. So they might have incomes as low as 
15, 20, 25,000 dollars a year. And so we just make sure that they're, you know, the, the, you know, they shouldn't pay, be paying more than 30% of their income on, on their rent. Okay, so we have learned that a, a new report shows Metro Vancouver has a $100 million budget for affordable housing. I got to say that sounds small. So talk to us about construction costs and how they factor into that, that budget. Yeah, so so a lot of not-for-profits right now, like ourselves, are starting to redevelop uh, their properties. I mean, land costs have been expensive for a long time. So we're taking buildings that we already uh, have that are at end of life. Uh, we're relocating our residents. You know, we've got a lot of other buildings. So we work with each resident to relocate them. And then developing that property to build a lot more density on it. So doubling or tripling the number of units uh, and also building a new building. So those units are, are you know, in good shape for the next 60 years or so. Okay. And so as a, re- as a result, a lot of not-for-profits are doing that because there is federal and provincial money flowing to help not-for-profits doing it because building affordable housing is, you know, all the costs that, that go into construction and, and architectural plans and feasibilities and going through public rezoning processes and all those things, they're expensive. And so doing all that and then not being able to just say, oh, well, the budgets went up, so we'll raise the price of, of the condos or we'll raise the price of the rental unit. When your goal is to keep your rents as low as possible, all those cost escalations really eat into the affordability. And so a lot of projects are underway. And with in the last six months, what we've seen is on top of all the cost increases during the pandemic with supply chain issues that primarily affected lumber, PVC piping, things like that. Now we're seeing, I mean, steel's the big one, concrete as well, where those price escalations the last six months have taken a project that was viable, meaning that it, it, it equaled out. It would break even because that's our only goal is to break even. Suddenly those projects, there's a gap. And so we're appealing to levels of government um, because as an offer profit, it's not like we have $10 million sitting in the bank to just put it in or yeah. we can't just raise rents to, to equalize that, that gap. Yeah, you mentioned there the higher cost of materials. Uh, it, we saw lumber accelerate uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, but uh, I talked to people in plumbing that's gone up, concrete, steel, all of that has, everything's gone up. And then I'm hearing that it's tough to find the workers too. Yeah, well, this is true. So it's, it's I mean, it's great that, that you know, it's a workers uh, uh, economy in the sense that people can switch jobs and, and maybe upskill and, and, and do get something different at the same time. Yeah, it's hard to staff a job right now. Um, and, and all the escalations you just mentioned are happening. And then against all of that, you know, to fight inflation, the feds are raising interest rates. And so suddenly, you know, when you're talking about a 33 $45 million project financed over, say, 40 years, even a small raise in interest rate hugely affects your, your you know, the operating costs of that building. And so you're getting this double whammy where interest rates are going up and construction costs are going up, and it's just having this double impact on what's called a performer, which is sort of the economic, uh, uh, you know, spreadsheet that forecasts the profitability or the break-even of the building. Okay, so then in trying to build new affordable houses, are you being forced to uh, build to a lesser standard, to build units that are not so nice? Well, no, I, I, we're not doing that at all. And, and we're at a place where all our projects are. The architectural plans are done. Like, we're building to passive house standard because, okay. you know, the environmental concerns are high. Yes. And so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess that's possible, but we're not entertaining that. I don't think most not-for-profits are. 
The thing about not-for-profits are we mostly own and operate our buildings. So if you build to lower standards, then you're operating that building for the next 60 years and you're just going to pay for it in the long run. So I don't think not-for-profits are going to look at that. I think they're just looking at these gaps and trying to figure out how they can, uh, how they can fill them. And what are you aiming for here in terms of uh, the amount of affordable housing? Yeah, so it depends on the project. I mean, the reality is with our older buildings that have no mortgage, that have been operating for a long time, we can on our own afford to keep rents incredibly low. Uh, but in some of our buildings, we also have operating agreements with BC Housing that provide a subsidy. It allows us to actually lose money on the building to make rents even lower and provide rents at even a lower rate. In the new buildings, because it's so expensive to build, even before all this, you know, we care about environmental standards. We care about, you know, uh, the quality of the materials. Uh, all these uh, cost escalations make a building expensive. So you do have to what's called cross-subsidize. You do have to have some units at the low end of market in order to bring in some revenues to offset those others. So um, the amount of affordable housing in each project varies on the kind of um, government financing we get. Uh, it can be as low as 30% of the units being deeply affordable and the rest cross-subsidized and as high as 70% being deeply affordable. So it really depends on uh, where there's ongoing subsidies to help bring down that level of affordability in a new build. And of course, those those buildings will become more affordable over time. There's been a lot of studies that show that because our goal is break even, even if there's more low end of market units, say, to cross subsidize in the beginning, you know, compared to the market where everyone's raising rents, you know, especially once, you know, 10 years into a project, once the mortgage costs, uh, you know, get to start start getting paid off, the project does become more affordable over time, but it really does vary. At this point, uh, William, what are you hoping the government could do? Yeah, so, I mean, I think on the federal side, we've got the, the National Housing Strategy and we've got the Co-Investment Fund, um, which is uh, a great program to finance affordable housing. You know, I believe the government at this point should cap interest rates um, instead of letting them float up with the market, which would make all not-for-profit housing projects pretty unviable at this point. They could cap interest rates. And then there's a capital grant component, which is an amount the not-for-profit doesn't have to pay back. If that amount was higher, um, even temporarily while we're in this sort of weird period and things hopefully will normalize at some point, it would allow projects to just continue moving forward and continue building the supportable housing. So that's one, that's one thing the federal government can do for sure. So you'd want to see the government cap interest rates? For affordable housing projects. projects. And what's your understanding of how that would impact? Well, so in a case like ours, so I'm talking about for -for not-for-profits building affordable housing projects. Yeah. Um, It means that right now we're watching the interest rate uh, that we may get uh, for uh, co-investment fund, in this case from CMHC, just go up and up and up because it goes up every time the Fed's raise interest rates. And so um, if it was capped so that it, it, you know, it's they still bringing in money and revenues from that paying back the loan, but they capped it at, at a low amount so that we had some certainty on what we have to pay rather than every time interest rates go up, we having to recalculate a project that, um, you know, is about to secure financing, but hasn't secured it yet. So I think that would be a good win-win that they'd still be charging an interest rate uh, as the federal government on low on, on uh, non-market housing, but the not-for-profits would have some assurance that they could lock in a rate that they can afford. I see. And has there been some advocacy around this, uh, vocal advocacy around this to the government? It's just 
starting. Yeah, because this is such a new situation. So I'm starting to hear people talking about that. And we've been in touch with CMHC about it. And again, this is a good loan program. Like, you know, uh, it's not like they've done anything wrong. It's just the market conditions have changed so dramatically in the last, you know, six months. Right. So interesting. William Azaroff, thanks for being my guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.